0: This is mark 7 verses 24 through 37 and from there he arose and went away to the region of tyre and Sidon. and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden but immediately a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet now the woman was a gentile a syrophoenician by birth and she begged him Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealous they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak.
1: Thank you, Celeste. All right, good afternoon. You guys are further away than I remember it's good to see you though all the way over there this is the first time that i've been in a church with pews in 20 plus years so this is a new experience on a number of levels Uh, i grew up in a church about this size with similar size pews grace baptist in middletown ohio so this is a bit uh, nostalgic i guess feels like to me but it's good to be here in this big space. We want to thank Pastor Allen, Pastor Dave, who, with their t- leadership team, graciously allowed us to meet here this week as we try out more spaces that might be adequate for our children. And um, yeah, we're just very, very thankful for that. So let's jump into where we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter seven, as Celeste read for us. Um, we've been going through, from the beginning of Mark, about the gospel of Christ, of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And what Mark, the writer of this gospel, is telling us, through the Holy Spirit, about the good news. We've had a number of titles that follow this pattern. Um, chapter 1, we looked at the good news for the sick. Chapter 3, good news for the, for the multitudes. Chapter 6, it was good news for the indecisive. In chapter 6, also good news for the hungry. Last week, Joe preached about good news for the unclean, where Jesus talks about how it's not what goes into a man, the food if, that we eat that defiles us, but it's what comes out of our hearts that def- show our defilement. Now, it's been really wonderful thing to expound on the good news of Jesus. I think this is an amazing um, and beautiful thing that every week we get to gather to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ And today we're going to further talk about good news for the excluded Good news for the excluded um, This is one of those passages if you are following along with what Celeste read for us where Jesus says one of those things that doesn't quite fit in the box of our modern values where he seems to call this Greek woman a dog, and where we all get a little bit uncomfortable. So we're going to talk about what Jesus meant by that, why her response was saving for her, and if that is in you and me. We're going to look at it in three parts. Um, the first part is the plan for inclusion and the second is the basis for inclusion and finally the God of inclusion. Now inclusion is a big buzzword for our modern moral values. Maybe 20 years ago when I was in high school, okay 25, the question was are there moral standards? Is there any such thing as truth that matters at all and does anything matter? Today, in the world that my kids are growing up in, the world has decided, yeah, there definitely are morals, and they've landed on a few morals, and one of those morals that they define as DEI, diversity, equity, and finally, inclusion, is what Jesus is going to show us in this passage that it's about, and we're going to see how the good news of Jesus affirms the value of inclusion But it gives behind it a logical foundation and a belonging that's actually meaningful when people are included in the family of God. And so first of all, we're going to look at um, God's plan for inclusion here in the first few verses. If you have your Bibles with me, um, we don't have it on the screen. So if you don't have your Bible, maybe you want to go back to Alex for those who didn't bring their Bibles. I do encourage you to bring your Bible, to write in it, to... Um, have the word of God always with you that's in your heart but so Jesus was having this conflict with these Pharisees that we read about last week and in particular Jesus was having conflict with their rules and how they were trying to justify themselves by how good they were by the rules that they made for themselves and then they kept he has a lot of conflict with them about that and um, Joe did a great job of explaining how Christ, let's say, laid open our defilement in front of him, and specifically of the Jewish people that he was speaking with. Now in verse 24, there's three things that are gonna show us that this is a big change of scenery. Now he's leaving the land of the Jews and he's going to the land of the Gentiles. First of all, in verse 24, it says that he was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are present day still cities in the country of Lebanon, and they are directly north of the Jewish lands. In fact, this was Jesus's only time in all of his earthly ministry that he leaves Jewish lands. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how he went to the other side of Galilee, and in the town of the Gesserines, G- I think is how you say it, that there was a, a man who was possessed with a demon. We don't know for sure if he was Jewish or Gentile, because that region on the other side of the Galilee and the other side of the Jordan was a mixture of Jewish and Gentile people. But here in this place was the very the only time in the life of Jesus that he left the Jewish area and went to a Gentile place I think that was very purposeful one of the purposes was he went for rest Um, two times it says that he tried to take his disciples apart where they could rest and he and the people just followed them and followed them just hounding them and so he finally leaves where he knows Jews won't follow outside to the place where the Gentiles are where they won't eat with Gentiles they won't go through Gentile lands and so he goes to find rest in the middle of going to find rest, though, he finds this woman. It says in verse twenty, in the end of verse 24, he entered into a house, yet it could not be hidden that he was there. The news had spread to this place as well that this miracle worker was there. It says that um, a woman came out. This is a mother, a mother whose daughter was possessed with a demon. She left her daughter at home, and she went to find her last hope for her daughter's freedom from the demon possession that... Her daughter was experiencing now we can only assume what her daughter was experiencing based on what we've seen in the scripture so far of what it looks like for someone to be possessed um, she could have been hurt, self-harming um, she could have been uncontrollable and was at this point left maybe even locked up in her home and this woman this mother is desperate for her daughter And she's tried all of the methods and all of the gods of the idols around her in the city and in the area that she's from and had found no power and no hope and so in verse 26 it says that this woman and mark is very intentional to say that she was a gentile possibly in your translation it says she was a greek those two words are used interchangeably Um, sometimes they say greek and it just means someone of a non-jewish origin it could be from the nations. The word Gentile, um, it means the nations. So of all the peoples of the earth, in particular those who aren't Jewish. And it further says that she was from Phoenician by birth. Syro was from Syria. Phoenicia is present-day Lebanon. It was one region in the Roman um, governance. So they had one ruler over it, and it was called Syro-Phoenicia. So this woman was, we know where she's from. We know what her idolatrous background was, of the type of idols that she had come from, but what you might not read here that we're going to see in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew tells the same story and um, as Mark does, but he gives a few more details. So right here where it says in verse 26, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Um, Matthew says what she said when she begged him to pass to cast the demon out of her daughter she says son of David Lord son of David would you cast the demon out of my daughter so this shows us something about this woman that though she is a Gentile she's not ignorant of Jewish scripture in fact son of David is a messianic term and it means the king that would come after David who would come from his line and this king second Samuel chapter 7 tells us in verse 7 through 9 that this king the son of David God had promised to David would be his son he would be the son of God and he would sit on the throne of David and rule his people with justice and mercy forever for a kingdom that is not that has no end So as this woman comes to Jesus, she's coming to him with this understanding that this is the the promised king of the Jews who would set up an eternal, just, but merciful kingdom. And she comes to Jesus begging and says, please, will you please have mercy on me? Now, another thing that Mark doesn't tell us that Matthew does is that his disciples wanted Jesus to send her away. And he gave her his first reason, the first time he told her that he wasn't going to help her, he said, I have been sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So we don't see Mark saying this, but so Jesus has been, she's been begging and begging possibly for days at this time that Jesus would help her and have mercy on her. This was a person who was at the absolute end of herself. Finally, we come to verse 27 where Jesus says that, famous or infamous line where he says another Illustration he had just used an illustration and he said I have come but to the lost sheep of Israel now obviously Jewish people aren't sheep in the literal sense. It's a illustration or a parable about He is the shepherd who have come to his sheep now. He says the statement it looks like an insult right and there, there are many commentators who say, well, this wasn't actually an insult, um, but I think that any time that you refer to a person as a dog, and there are two types of words for dog. There's the street dog, and then there's the puppy who lives in your home, but anytime you are saying that, first of all, you can't have bread, and secondly, that you're likened to a dog, this has high potential to be offensive, right? I was driving the Kids Life kids around in the bus and a couple of them were very fond of calling each other that in Arabic. They don't know that I could understand that word that they're saying to each other. Um, And they weren't trying to compliment one another while they're saying that word. So Jesus says that, uh, he said, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. I wanna suggest to you that this is not an insult, but it's a parable. It's a very short parable. Now, we're used to Jesus telling parables, but this one isn't quickly recognizable as a parable. But it is. He, I want you to see a few things that give us the clue that it's actually a parable. First of all, he says, let the children be fed first. So a parable is an earthly story meant to explain a heavenly truth. And so God is explaining something about the order by which he, as the shepherd of Israel, is going to come and feed the people. First, he says he's come to feed the sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now he's further talking about food. Look, he says bread, talking about the children's bread. And so he's giving this whole illustration that has these different parts to it. And he's explaining to them that the first thing that I'm going to do is feed the children, but then the food is coming. It's coming down the line, but first I have to finish this task. So he was basically saying to her, the, the heavenly reality that he was explaining with this earthly story or this very short earthly illustration was how and when God plans to bring the good news of the son of David, the king of the Jews, and not only the Jews, but all who would come to him um, under his rule and for him to provide for them. So he is giving an illustration about order. Now this, this woman, and, and there were a lot of people that fell into this category that we see in the New Testament, she was what we call a God-fearer. Now the Jewish people that were born Jews were simply called Jewish and then the uh, idol worshipers were idol worshipers but many we don't know how many, but thousands and probably tens of thousands of Gentiles, after the spread of the Jews during the captivity by Babylon and Syria, had um, heard about the scriptures of the Jewish people. Now, we are used to, in our present context, and particularly in this city, that there is quite a bifurcated uh, monotheistic culture where you've already decided in this monotheistic uh religion or the other one or possibly a third one but we don't have a lot of idol worshipping that is visible we repented of idol worshipping we talked about what it could be to be a spiritual idol worshipper but we don't have a lot of those types of idol worshipping religions anymore but in those days they only had one monotheistic religion and that was the faith of Abraham Isaac and Jacob that was Jewish they didn't have these these different, um, very entrenched, well-thought-out systems of belief. And so you had a Jewish system of faith that gained faith from tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands in the Roman Empire, and because they were no longer idol worshippers, they had rejected their idols, and they had come to the God of of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they made a word for them which is God-fearers. These people would come to the synagogues and they would even sometimes follow the feasts of the Jews, but they were not Jews. This woman very likely was one of these god like the Italian uh, leader that came to Christ in Acts chapter 10. Um, he, they were people who knew the scriptures of the Jews. And very likely she understood that Abraham, with the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12:3. Where, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. She also, spe- she referred to Jesus as the son of David. The songs of the Jews became quite f- famous and popular, especially this woman is just on the other side of the border from the Jews. One of the songs of the Jews was, was, Hebrew, was Psalm 67, written by King David and it says this may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations let the peoples praise you O God let the peoples praise you nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon earth let the nations be glad she surely knew the song that God had intended to bring the good and the happy news, not only to the Jewish people, but also to all of the nations of the world through Abraham and particularly through the son of David. But Jesus was telling her now, there is an order to how this is going to happen. It's going to first come to the Jews and then to the nations. Paul affirms this in Romans 1 where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says again in Romans 9, 29, he says that God in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for mercy, he's gonna say three things about the nations or all the peoples of the earth being included in God's family. He said, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles. In Romans nine twenty five, 25, he further says, as indeed he says in Hosea, quoting an Old Testament prophet, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. So this was something that, if this woman knew about God's plan, she didn't know possibly the order, but it didn't matter to her, she was desperate. And she came to the son of David and said, have mercy on me. Jesus was saying, God has a plan to include the nations, but first I have to come to the the house of Israel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So God in his great love had a plan to include this woman and you and me into his family. So I'll give you an illustration about why this is so important. On Tuesday, Jillian and I will celebrate 20 years of marriage. Thank you. Everybody clap for her, because that's quite an achievement for her to have set 20 years of patience. So we're gonna celebrate 20 years of marriage. Now what would happen, men, if I planned nothing for our 20th anniversary? And on Tuesday morning, I woke up and I said, I better see if the flower store is open. What would that communicate to her in, uh, let's say, uh, in relief or in in juxtaposed with the plan that I actually created, which was that we're going to go to Colorado tomorrow and we're gonna climb Pike's Peak to sort of illustrate that we have climbed this 20 year peak of marriage and I know that the frills are back there, like you guys are just getting started. However, for us, it's a really big deal that we've been married for 20 years, and we planned this. We've been talking about it for months because when you plan something, you communicate value to the person you're planning it for. Not that spontaneity means nothing, but planned things communicate love. So did you know that God from the beginning of time planned to include you into his family and that he knew your name and every hair on your head and he knew your birth who you would be born to and where you would be born and he cares enough about you from all of the old testament up into Jesus tell us that he is planning to include all of the colors and nations and languages and tribes of the earth into his great family. Should that mean anything to you and me? I think it should communicate a ton of love from the most important person, our God, the uncreated creator. Now, if you, for, if you are one of the many people who struggle with a sense of value because possibly your parents didn't show you value, they never planned and prepared something that showed you that they love you or uh, it leaves you with a sense of desperation for someone to care about you, for someone to love you and to include you. What if the most important person in the world, more important than mom and dad, more important than your spouse, more important than the, 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 the let's say, the cool kids in high school or, or junior high, it, be it junior high. If that the most important person had planned to include you and his family and loved you and made a way for that to happen and then in his sovereignty came to you and explained that to you, it should relieve us of all of the angst and the um, grasping that we have from those around us to care about us and include us. I'll give you one sort of test for, is this important to you? How do you feel when you're excluded from something? When a group of friends are going out for a meal and they don't think of you, and they don't call you? Or a parent seems to include or care about one of their children and not you, or they seem to somehow have forgotten that you even exist? How does that affect you? Does it affect you deeply? Does it cause you to lash out? And anger, I would say, probably it does. So how do we begin to heal from that? One of the ways, and the best way, the beginning of it, is the good news of Jesus is that he has planned to include you in his family. For the last 4,000 years plus, he has been including, planning to include you, and has told us this here in his word. Um, what about in our church so this church is in a very multicultural, multi-ethnic, um, multilingual city. What is it that we're doing to include the nations? Because God has included the nations in His church. The church at the beginning and the origins of the church was the most um, countercultural, open, inclusive group that the Roman Empire had ever known. It was bringing in men and women. It wasn't a secret society for men. It was bringing in Jews and non-Jews. It was bringing in Asians and Africans and Europeans. It was bringing in people as they came to know their creator Christ and joined together in his church. So here we are, Christ Community Church. One of the things we're gonna be doing over the next four months, and I want all of us to begin to pray about this, we're beginning to host each of our GCs an open table night. And an open table night just means that the table of God represented by my table in my home is open to anybody who will. And you can come. We're not going to preach at you. We're not going to force you to sit through a Bible study unless, by God's grace, you want to. We definitely want you to know him through his word. But we want first to open our doors wide and say, come sit at our table and eat with us. Because that's what God has done to include us and his family that's what our church wants to do and we want to invite people of all backgrounds and all colors and tribes and languages and tongues and because as Cindy emotionally read as we all felt it with her that the end goal of the church is to worship Christ of all the languages and colors that he created so the plan of God first to the Jews includes the nations so how does that work for today's moral values of diversity, equity, and inclusion? I ran this by our DEI expert on Friday. We, have a, we had our first pre-sermon breakfast and I shared with them what the sermon was about on Sunday. They gave me feedback for how this could apply to our church and to our lives individually. And I asked Matt, who's not here today because he's got family in, but he's, he works in this area, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, as his full-time job. So in the schools, he's, inclu- he's involved in this uh, effort, this moral effort of our generation to include people who were previously excluded from education. And so I asked him if this is true, and he confirmed it to me, that the gospel of Jesus gives a actual, logical, consistent worldview that makes inclusion in our jobs in our schools and in our churches it makes it make sense it gives it a consistent logical foundation i'll give you for example if as most secular people would believe today we've come about by evolution and particularly darwinian evolution where the survival of the fittest is how we have come to be then inclusion diversity and equity Has no foundation in the origin story that starts with evolution. In fact, inclusion should be the opposite conclusion of what we come to if we follow Darwinian theory. That we don't have any reason to say that inclusion is right or good if we have that background of thought. One very famous um, CEO of a nonprofit organization who is fighting for women's rights in Africa, was asked why do the Africans have to accept this moral foundation or this moral judgment that you are trying to take to them that women should be given equal standing with men. Why is that something that they should understand? Possibly their culture doesn't believe that women in different cultures, now Africa is a culture. I lived there for 10 years, so I can tell you it's a place of thousands of cultures, but possibly you come upon one group of people who believe that, that women are actually subhuman. What about what you believe proves that what you're teaching is not just some sort of um, moral colonialism, where you're coming to pass along to them your set of beliefs that you're forcing on them? And she had to admit, well, I just know it's right. I don't really have a good foundation to tell them why it is, but I just know that it is. Well, the good news of Jesus gives us a consistent moral background for why we can speak to this child who was previously excluded from education, previously excluded from whatever they were excluded from, and say that they should be included. They should be included because God, their creator, created them with the value of a human that is not the value of a chicken or of an amoeba. That God not only created them equal in breathing into us his own breath, his own spirit, but he also redeemed us and told us through his word that his plan all along has been to include all the nations of the earth. That way we can say to the child, whether it's at kid's life or whether it's at the school that you work at, we can say you are unique because God made you and gave you life. You are valuable because of the price that God paid for you, the blood of Jesus. For 10 years that we served in North Africa, I repeated this over and over again to my new brothers and sisters in Christ because their culture is so used to putting other people down and actually calling people a zero. Like, your value is zero. That's one of their insults. And it's a very common thing to say to somebody. And I would tell them over and over, the value of each human is the price that was paid for them. You know, what's the value of this iPhone? Well, if we got together, the market here, how many of you are willing to pay $400? And whoever's got the highest bid is what then becomes the value of this phone. So the value of every human is the price that God paid for them, which is the blood of Jesus. And that is the same value on every human being, that we can look at a child, no matter their disability, no matter their their background or their socioeconomic status, and we can say your value is in the God who created you and who sent his son to pay the price to redeem you. That is a consistent, logical foundation for the conclusion of the idea of inclusion. Not only that, but the the moral judgments that that our culture makes that people are to be included stops with the reality that they're included. Now sometimes in the DEI, they've added another letter which is B for belonging, but really the inclusion only goes as far as our institutions. God opened up his family to the nations of the earth, and he called us brother and sister. And so the inclusion is not just institutional or the inclusive opportunity, but it's the inclusion into his family. So not only is inclusion a Christian moral judgment, but it is one with sufficient strength and sufficient conclusive belonging that it's the only thing that should really, the Christian should be the most enthusiastic about diversity, equity, inclusion, because our God is. So we see that, God, that Jesus was explaining to her his plan for inclusion. Let's look at the second thing in verse 28. Now, she answers him, and this is the basis for inclusion. It is faith. This woman had a very witty response, but you could imagine that she could have had a very offended response. There were a number of things that could have offended her about what Jesus said. Um, but instead she had a, a witty response and she actually understood his parable. This is the contrast with the people who have not understood the parable of Jesus. The Pharisees, who are the most educated religious people in the world, did not under, they, they were angry about his parables, and his own disciples, Jesus was frustrated with them with how dense they were that they could not understand his parables. So here are Jewish men who either were angered or confused by his parables, and now a Greek woman not only understands his parable, but is not angry about it, receives it, and gives Jesus this extremely witty response. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus' response to that was, because of the statement, your daughter has been healed, you'll find her healed at home. Matthew says it a little bit different. In case you were to imagine that it's some particular abracadabra statement that gets people into the family of God and includes them. Matthew, this is why we have four gospels. It gives us the full picture from the different testimonies. Matthew chapter 15, Matthew writes that Jesus said, great is your faith, your daughter has been healed. So behind that statement was great faith. So the only way to be included in the family of God is through faith in his son, Jesus. It is so important to identify faith in this woman because it's going to help us identify if you have real faith in Jesus and if I have real faith in Jesus. So as a pastor, as your pastor, if you're a part of this church, it is my job to challenge you to examine yourself. Do you have this woman's faith? Whether you grew up in church, grew up with a Christian family, that's not how you get into God's family. We are all born in a state of rebellion against God and need saved from ourselves through faith. So what was great about this woman's faith? I think we see two things and uh, if you write stuff down, this maybe for me was the most helpful part of this passage. First of all, saving faith does not demand fairness. Rather, it begs for grace. Saving faith does not demand fairness. Secondly, saving faith does not boast in self. Rather, it boasts in God. So those two values we've brought up a generation to believe in above all other things, that they are valuable, and if anybody puts them down, or if anybody tries to take away from their value, that person is now the enemy. Whether they're being corrected or whether they by someone who loves them, it's still somebody against me if they're trying to tell me there's anything wrong with me. And fair. Everything has to be fair. Right? But saving faith is neither demands fairness nor does it boast in itself. So this woman could have been upset if she'd had our modern moral values. She could have been upset. She could have said, why do the Jews get to be included first? That's not fair. How many of us as parents might imagine one of our children saying that? Why him first? That's not fair. Why her first? That's not fair. She could have said that. She could have said, why do I get punished for being part of the wrong tribe of people? That's not fair. Or she could have said, if you give bread to the Jews, you have to give bread to everybody. And if you don't, it's not fair. But she doesn't say that. She could have said, as soon as he said that, she could have said, well, you're, you're rude. I'm out and gone home. She could have said, I'm recording this on Facebook Live right now. Everybody's saying exactly what you're saying to me. She could have wanted Jesus to blow up on social media as being, uh, you know, racist at her because he called all non Jewish people dogs. But she didn't do that. Let's look at what she said in two parts, and those two parts are going to support what I said, that saving faith does not demand fairness, and saving faith does not boast in self. The first thing she said is, yes, Lord. In Greek, that is nai Kyrios. If you know just a little bit of Greek, you know that word, Kyrios, Lord. She said, yes, Lord. This Jesus is Lord, the Messiah is Lord, was the whole creed of the first church. Jesus is sovereign, king, and savior. In saying, yes, Lord, she agrees with him. She does not demand fairness for herself. One writer who really helped me with this, and for the men that are in our WhatsApp group, I sent you this sermon in printed form from Jonathan Edwards 400 years ago. A preacher named Jonathan Edwards in New England preached a sermon called The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. It's not a very popular sermon title anymore, But back then, it sparked the first great awakening in the United States where churches multiplied around our country because of this sermon and a few others that Jonathan Edwards preached. And I read this sermon when I was in seminary and it totally um, helped me to understand God's fairness, what God's fairness is compared to my fairness, when it's God giving grace. And in 400-year-old English, Jonathan Edwards says, if with man's sinfulness, we consider God's sovereignty, and that's what's at play here. This woman who is a representative of a sinful world, who comes from people that are far from God, and God's sovereignty, she's calling Jesus Lord, if with man's sinfulness, we consider God's sovereignty, it may serve to clear God's justice in the eternal rejection and condemnation of sinners from men's objections. God's sovereignty extends to the following things, and Edwards explains a number of things that God's sovereignty explains to. Basically, I'll paraphrase what he's saying in 400-year-old English, is that we often criticize God for unfairness because of how the good news of Jesus makes its way into the world, and how he judges for sin. Edwards' sermon was that God is just in his damnation of sinners, And here are ways that God's sovereignty extends to the idea of of including us. First of all, God's sovereignty extends to the following things. He says, God is under no obligation to keep men from sinning, but he may in his providence permit and leave them to sin. Secondly, he says, if God excluded you forever from his goodness, it would be consistent with your rejection of him. This is a hard-hitting one if you think about it. If God were to exclude you and I from his family for eternity, we may say, that's not fair, but this woman didn't. She said, if you excluded me, it would be all I deserve. Yes, Lord. Because of how we, sons of Adam, have rejected Jesus, have rejected the, the sovereign rule of God. Further, Edward says that if God gives grace to some, it does not make him the debtor to everyone. That is to say that the nature of grace is that it is a free gift. It is mercy. Sin means we are in his debt. Grace means we are in his debt twice. We are double in the debt of God for having saved us after we rejected and rebelled against him. This woman, as she responded to Jesus, did not claim at all that the Savior of the world, the son of David, the king, was being unfair. In fact, she says, I deserve for you to say that fairness no give me grace that's what she was saying she was saying mercy some have accused god and said it's not fair if he elects some for salvation but not others edward says the fact that he would elect anyone for salvation is all of his grace and he will never be the debtor to someone else i was we have this though in our minds that god owes us something i was at Harbor Freight the other day, and this lady could not get her toolbox that she had bought into her car. And for me, this is quite normal, but I said, well, I'll help you. And I was, they didn't have anybody on staff that could help her. I said, well, I'll help you get into your car. And the Harbor Freight employee was just floored that I would help this lady. And I didn't think it was such a big deal, but she was really going on and on about it. And she said, God is going to pay you back for this kindness. I just know he is. I just believe that God's going to do something for you. And in a gospel moment, I said to her, you know what? God doesn't owe me anything, especially for this. He has given me so much that he will never be my debtor. And this is the idea that this woman says, God has been merciful to me to live up to this moment. If you are alive, you experience the mercy of God to today. And God is extending to you the mercy in Jesus, but only to those who will come to Jesus and believe this woman said, yes, Lord, don't give me fairness. Please just give me mercy. And that's the second part that she said, but she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table get crumbs. What she was saying is, I'm not counting on my goodness and that I'm worthy. I'm not saying I'm not a dog. I'm saying, but even dogs get crumbs. She's saying, I'm not pointing to my goodness i'm pointing to your mercy and saying based on your mercy please be kind to me because i'm desperate she said maybe just a crumb would be enough that shows that she values crumbs from the messiah's table more than the feast of the idols that was given to her in sidon she wanted just a crumb because she had tried The feast of the idols and found it was empty. There is no boasting for those who come to Jesus. You have to come to him completely empty of self. And in fact, if you have been brought by God to a place of emptiness of self and of soul, just destruction and depression, that was the grace of God in your life. Because nobody who is ever satisfied by a sandwich at the idol's table will come to Jesus for crumbs. So if you came to Jesus for a crumb, it was the grace of God that led you to that. This woman's situation was horrible with her daughter. It was surely, if we'd seen it with our own eyes, it would just make us burdened for how hard her life has been for years. But it was God's grace because it drove her to Jesus um so as a church what does this mean for us it means that god designed the church to be made up of a community of faith people who have been driven to their knees begging jesus for a crumb and the good thing is you beg jesus for a crumb he will give you a feast you go to the idols for a feast they don't have a crumb that can even begin to fill your soul By the idols, I mean anything in this created world outside of God. So here's the question. Do you have real saving faith? Have you found only Jesus to be satisfying? Would you choose a crumb from his table rather than a feast elsewhere? Would you say, God, would you give me a crumb of your love, and I will reject the love of any boyfriend or any girlfriend that doesn't love you? because I can never satisfy myself with their love? Or God, would you give me a crumb from your word and I will satisfy myself with... That was my timer, 43 minutes. Would you give me a crumb from your word and that will satisfy me above all the philosophies of man? Would you say, Lord, would you give me just a crumb of your spirit and that would satisfy me from all the encouragement that I might like to draw from the spirits around me? if you have not come to jesus in this way you have not come to jesus many people think that they are followers of jesus but they are adding him to their pantheon of gods and things that satisfy them if you have not satisfied yourself with christ and him alone then you are not a follower of jesus you have do not possess real saving faith and you don't know him i say that to you only because the word of God says it, and he's given me the job to love you enough to say that. So here is the solution for that. We don't have time to dwell on it because I gave myself 45 minutes, so I have about one minute left. But this last story of the deaf man who came to Jesus, his friends brought him to Jesus, and they asked him. Jesus touched his ears, touched his tongue, and then spoke the words, Be open. It is only Christ who can open your hard heart. And if you feel yourself like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I don't think I've come to that point yet. You can even, not only can you come to Jesus for crumbs, but you can come to him and say, Lord, I don't feel it. Would you please do it for me? Would you please open my heart to understand and to receive you? I want to receive you, but I lack this faith that this woman has because faith is a gift from God and it can be given. By asking so go to the Lord and ask him for to, that gift of faith to be included in his family as a conclusion to the sermon God is a God we see who includes the nations and he loves you desires to include you in me beyond that everyone that you see today if you're a follower of jesus everyone you see this week god has set his sovereign love upon that person and the blood of christ desires that they know him i want to challenge you this week say to someone who you meet that you are worthy not because of any word you don't have to say this whole sentence not because of any worthiness about yourself but because god has put value on you he's created you and he has sent his son for you that is The good news of Jesus for the excluded. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have included us in that crowd that would gather on the last day, standing before the throne to worship the Lamb and say, worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and praise and power and glory, for he has redeemed the nations by his blood. We thank you. We don't come to you with any value of ourselves. Only begging, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table get crumbs. And all of us who are Gentiles here today say, Lord, suffice us with a crumb. And we feast in your word, in Jesus' name.